The reading this morning is from Psalm 88, and we'll read the whole thing. Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the direction of music, according to the Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I'm sure you've seen this in your own life. Maybe this actually is a description of you. But a common response to suffering and to evil in the world today is that people disbelieve God. Uh, You'll see it all over YouTube and the internet, but I found an example of this with David Attenborough, the great naturalist. He said this, quote, when people want to give God the credit, they nearly always take the example of butterflies or hummingbirds. But I think of a little boy sitting on the bank of a river in West Africa with a worm that is boring through his eyeball and which would certainly turn him blind within a few years. Now this God whom you say created every single species must presumably have created that worm. I don't find that compatible with the notion of God being a merciful creator. It's a very common response to suffering. If suffering exists, it must mean that God doesn't. Or... If God does exist, it must mean that he is evil because he doesn't eradicate suffering and hardship from the world. Maybe you know somebody who holds that view. Perhaps they articulate it in a different way. Maybe you hold that view this morning. What I want to suggest to you is that Psalm 88 gives us an alternate response to suffering in the life of the believer. If you are a believer and you are here this morning, Uh, You are not immune from evil and from suffering in the world today. The book of Psalms 
is a very unique book in the Bible. Um, the other books of the Bible are God's words to us. Of course, that applies to the book of Psalms as well. But what is unique about the book of Psalms is that it's God's words to us so that we can pray them back to him. It's the prayer book of the Bible. It was the prayer book of the nation of Israel. And many, many, many Christians have found great uh, resource in the Psalms because it puts into words many of our groanings and our longings that we struggle to articulate to God. The book of Psalms gives us the furniture with which to speak to God. In the first place, it's God's word to us. In the second place, it's our words back to God. There is no sadder chapter in the whole Bible than Psalm 88. Uh, there is no hope given in the psalm. One commentator says this about Psalm 88, there is hardly a spark of hope in the psalm. The author is God-forsaken. It is a description of living death. There's no hody blinkan boer in the psalm, is there? It's very authentic and real. Darkness comes three times in the psalm, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 18, the final word of the psalm is the word darkness. Literally, my only friend is darkness. What kind of prayer is this? We know it is a prayer and a song. It's called that in the superscript of the psalm. At the top it says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. There is no relief. There is no resolution. There is no joy. There is no hope and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. I want us to look at three headings this morning and see how this applies to us. Number one, the extent of the darkness. Number two, the interrogation of God. And number three, the subtle hope. You know, sometimes in this church, we're accused of being anti-emotion, for we lack public displays of emotion and spontaneity. Sometimes people tell us, I think wrongly that it's because we don't have the Holy Spirit as though the Holy Spirit is not present when the Bible is taught and Christ is preached. But I want to say what we are against is emotionalism. We refuse to engage in the manufacturing of experiences in our meetings, which are often contrived and insincere. Our view is that the primary Christian experience is hearing the word of God and responding in faith and repentance. While we are against emotionalism, we are not against emotion. Emotion and experience are wonderful gifts given to us by God to be enjoyed and to be embraced with thanksgiving. And here is a psalm that is full of very human emotion. It's emotion that resonates with us. It's emotion that gives us permission to feel our feelings and be honest with God. Emotion that is put into words so that when we feel certain things, we can say that to God like the psalmist does. Tim Keller says the book of Psalms puts on display the whole range of human emotions and models for us what to do with how we feel. It invites us to be emotional with God. We're not sure what happened to the psalmist. We're not told his exact situation. And that's deliberate because it makes the psalm ubiquitous. It's applicable to everybody. 
Because if we knew the exact circumstances that he was writing in, we could easily say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. So because it's vague, can you see that it has a greater application, a wider application to all of us? It applies to any believer who feels like this, no matter what the details are of your personal and specific situation. There are clues that reveal his situation, and we can observe his suffering in at least four areas. This is under the first heading, the extent of the darkness. Four areas that are revealed in the psalm. First of all, spiritual suffering. You see this in verse 3, verse 7, and verses 14 to 16. He is in spiritual anguish. He feels that God has set his hand against him. A spiritual depression has descended on him, an inner darkness. Last week we looked at Psalm 46, which you can listen to if you weren't here on your own time. That was all about chaos in the outside world. But this is chaos in the inside world. A spiritual inner darkness and depression has fallen on him. He feels far from God. He doesn't feel God's presence. Verse 14, why do you hide your face from me? He feels that God has abandoned him. Maybe that describes how you have felt or are feeling. Perhaps he's remembering some sin from the past. Or he's feeling the consequences of his own brokenness and failings. We're not sure. He feels that he's being punished. Look at verse 7. He says, your wrath lies heavily on me. And look at verse uh, 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. God is displeased with him, he feels. He has turned his face away from him. Perhaps it's a fresh sin that he's committed that he's struggling with. Or perhaps it's a besetting sin that he keeps going back to, though he wishes that he didn't. And he's struggling with guilt and with regret. There's spiritual suffering, but there's also physical suffering. Verse 4 I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. He's close to death. Perhaps he's an old man. Maybe he's in his twilight years, feeling his age. Old, sick, frail, abandoned. In verse 5, he says that he, he feels unremembered. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. He feels irrelevant and shut out, isolated, quarantined. Maybe he's got COVID and he's on his own. Physical suffering. There's also relational suffering. Look at verse 8. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and I can't escape. Shunned. He's utterly alone. Some commentators have taken verse 8 to suggest that perhaps he's got leprosy. And uh, we can't be sure, but he feels disfigured and repulsive and alone and shunned. Maybe he's infectious. Some of you may know something of what he feels. Maybe not the full extent of it, but aspects of it. Maybe those who have been divorced or those who have been bereaved. You know what he means. Others know what it's like to be part of a family and yet to feel utterly alone. I spoke to a lady last week, not from this church, and that's her story. She's the only Christian in her family. The family hate her. 
and they make it very clear that they do, and it's because of her love for Jesus. The Bible knows these feelings. You're allowed to say them to God. There's also, fourthly, emotional suffering, verse 7, 9, 15, and 17. In verse 7, he's overwhelmed and feels like he's drowning. Language often used by those in the grips of some kind of emotional or psychological malady. I feel overwhelmed, feel like the waves are crashing on me. In verse 9, he's full of sorrow and grief. In verse 15, there is terror and despair. In verse 17, there's a flood drowning him closing in on him in claustrophobic panic. What a state he's in. A friend of mine struggles with very, very profound and deep depression. He's a Christian. And what has been very helpful to him over the years to talk about these things with other Christians who can pray for him and support him has been the use of metaphor. It's very difficult to explain how you feel when you struggle with deep and profound depression. And so he's resorted to using metaphors. And many of those metaphors come directly out of the Psalms and actually directly out of the Psalm. I feel like the waves have crashed against me. Darkness. Helpful language to describe how you feel. Maybe you felt like that. And what is striking is that he doesn't do what Attenborough does, dismiss the idea of God. He doesn't draw the conclusion that because of the existence of suffering, there can't be a loving God. He does something very bold. He interrogates God. And that's the second heading. I want you to notice the pronouns in verses 6 to 8. I'm going to read this for us again. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. It's your fault. He doesn't hold back. There's no doubt in his mind who is responsible. God has done this to him. You know, friends, here is a wonderful example of a believer taking his pain to the right place. Who is he taking his pain to? Did you notice verse 1? Lord, you are the God who saves me. In the original it says, God my Savior. I love his honesty, don't you? You have done this to me. I wonder, you know, many of us feel that in our moments of darkness, but how many of us are brave enough to actually say that to God? It does make you want to take a step back from him in case a lightning bolt strikes. This is your fault. I love his honesty, and I love the fact that this gives me permission to feel these feelings and to say them to God. He can take it. And so he asks God in the interrogation five questions between verses 10 and 14. He does a very interesting thing in these questions. He appeals to God's own self-interest, which I suppose is how you speak to a king in the ancient world. If you want to persuade him to do something, you appeal to his self-interest. Verse 10a, <clears throat> he says, do you show your wonders to the dead? Lord, you need to do something. I'm close to death. And once I'm dead, it's too late. What good am I to you dead? Second question, verse 10b, do the, the dead rise up and praise you? 
Why would you deny yourself praise by allowing me to die? Self-interest. Third question, verse 11. Is your love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in destruction? If I'm dead, I can't declare your love or faithfulness to others. Verse 12. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion or forgetfulness? How does death show your wonders and your righteousness? Who would look at death, Lord, and say that is a wonder of God? Surely it's, surely it's fodder for insulting God. You would say that God was there at the beginning of somebody's life. When a baby is born, the wonders of God, but not at the end of somebody's life. Last question, verse 14. O oh Lord, why do you reject me? Cast my soul away. Why do you hide your face from me? What have I done to deserve being abandoned by you? It's quite a prayer. This is not the quiet resignation of thy will be done, is it? He's wrestling with God. He's saying, no good can come from this for you and your reputation. Where are you? I can't find you. You have discarded me. You have abandoned me. My God, my God. Do you know the rest? Why have you forsaken me? And then the conclusion, verse 18, is my closest friend is darkness. In other words, he's saying to God, darkness is a better friend than you. And that's how it ends. Right, our closing song is, no, there's still more. What are we to do with this? Uh, the title, by the way, can I just speak to those who read the Bible in our church publicly? Whenever you read a psalm, you must read the superscript. Please, it sets the context and it is God's word to us. Often we just go to verse 1 because we think, oh, well, that bit doesn't really matter. It actually does matter, and so I'm glad that Lauren read it. The title tells us that this is a song, but who would want to sing this song? Uh, Paul Simon, darkness, my old friend. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Why did God include it in the Psalter, in, the, in Israel's prayer book? I want to mention two things as I close that teach us so much about this lament. The first thing is I want you to notice the nature of the psalmist's relationship with God. It's quite easy to read over it and to miss it. But four verses in the psalm show something very precious. Look at verse 1. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Verse 2. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Verse 9. Second half, I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, I cry to you for help, Lord, in the morning my prayer comes before you. What do these verses show? Verse 1 makes it clear that this psalm is written by a believer. He's not an atheist like Attenborough. He's not seen the suffering of his soul as a reason to disbelieve God or to distrust him. He knows God, and he knows that God is his savior. There's no question in his mind about that. 
But can you see how these verses show him praying and engaging and wrestling with God? Although he feels that God has abandoned him, he hasn't abandoned God. He's holding on to God. He's talking to God. He's wrestling with God. He, although he feels God forsaken, every morning, day and night, I cry out before you, he says. That is, he is up in God's face in spite of how he feels. In spite of his distress and sorrow, he has not turned away from God. He has actually turned towards God. Night and day I cry out to you. The very act of crying out to God from the lowest point is evidence of where his trust lies. Instead of turning away from God in bitterness, as many people do, he looks to the God of his salvation. It's evidence of faith. It's evidence of trust, no matter how broken, no matter how small. It's evidence of relationship with God. And brothers and sisters, here is a model for us, an example of someone who is not in relationship with God only for the good things that God gives him. Do you know people like that? Transactional relationship with God, quid pro quo. I've met many people in my job who say, God didn't give this or that to me, and so I'm no longer a Christian. Oh, that's interesting. Did God owe you those things? Are you a fair-weather friend that when you don't get your way like a petulant toddler, you walk away in a huff? What a silly way to treat God. God has stripped him of everything, physical health, mental health, friendship, peace, and still night and day, here is a mature response to suffering. He cries out to God and he wrestles with God. The darkness doesn't prove the non-existence of God, doesn't prove the defeat of God. Friends, evidence of you being in relationship with God is that when you suffer, instead of turning away, you turn towards him and you don't let him go. But I want you to notice something else. Like many who go through darkness, he speaks of his darkness as though it is absolute and permanent. For when you are in the midst of it, it feels like it's never going to change your situation. It feels like it's never going to pass. And so it's a very understandable approach to have in the moment, he genuinely believes that the darkness is permanent. He thinks it will never pass and that he'll never come through it. He believes that what he's feeling is objective reality. I feel that you've abandoned me. Therefore, it must be true. You have actually abandoned me because I feel it. We often respond to suffering like that, don't we? We feel that it will never pass. We feel that our emotions in the moment are objective fact. But actually, the psalmist is wrong about that. We know that it was temporary because of the title of the psalm. You can read about this guy who wrote the psalm called He-Man. Do you remember He-Man, the master of the universe? It's not that He-Man. You can read about him in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He was a priest and a musician, 
And we know that Psalm 88 wasn't the end of his story because he also went on to write other psalms of praise where there's lots of hope and joy. Though he felt it was permanent in the moment, it was temporary. Though he felt it was objective reality, it was subjective. Though he felt abandoned by God, God was there with him, carrying him and keeping him through it. And many of you can say that, can't you? When you look back on the darkness over various times in your life. In the moment, it felt like it was objective reality that God had abandoned you. But as you look back on it, you see that he was right there with you. God has his secret purposes in our darkness that are for our ultimate good and are not shared with us. It's time that we really grasped that darkness in our lives is not proof of God's defeat, and nor is it proof of God's displeasure with us. And we know that, dear brothers and sisters, because of Jesus. Jesus was objectively abandoned by God. The waves of God's wrath did actually engulf him. God's wrath did lay heavily upon him. He really was put in the lowest pit. He really was repulsive to his companions who abandoned him. He was abandoned by his nation. He was abandoned by his friends. And most strikingly of all, he was abandoned by his father as he hung on the cross. He is the God-forsaken God as he hangs on the cross. He is God our Savior. Darkness really was his only friend. Do you remember verse 45 of Matthew 27? From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. God is angry when the sun is switched off. That happened in the ninth plague against Egypt. Remember? God sent darkness. He switched the sun off for days. The ninth plague preceded the death of the firstborn son. Darkness precedes the death of Jesus. He experienced darkness so that in your darkness you can know that he is there. Jesus was truly abandoned so that although you feel abandoned, you know that you're not. No matter what you've done, he's not going to abandon you. He is your friend. The darkness that Jesus experienced on the cross, the dereliction and the desolation, the sorrow and the pain and the loneliness was done for you and for me so that no matter how we feel, we can know something better. And do you remember verse 10 of our psalm this morning? Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Well, the resurrection of Jesus was the greatest demonstration that the world has ever seen of the wonder of God's power as death was put in its place, as Jesus defeated death. Though giving birth is a wonder, Raising the dead is even more magnificent. 
Friends, this psalm gives us permission to cry out to God when we are low. But it also draws us to the cross where another had God's wrath overwhelm him so that we can have God's love flood into our hearts. Where another went into the pit so that we can be lifted up into the arms of a loving and a safe God. Where another was abandoned so that we can have friendship with the God of our salvation. Do you know him? Will you come to him if you don't today and ask him to forgive you and thank him that wrath and darkness and forsakenness was put on Jesus so that it doesn't have to be put on you. Today is a great day for you to make friends with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would like help with that, nothing would give me greater joy than to speak to you afterwards. And now will you bow with me as we pray. Just going to give you a moment of quiet reflection. And it might be that you want to say something appropriate to God in the privacy of your own heart and mind. Father, how grateful we are to you for preserving this psalm for us this morning. Thank you for the realism of the Bible and that we don't have to pretend. We can be real with you and tell you how we really feel. And Father, how grateful we are for your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who experienced everything in this psalm objectively, absolutely, so that when we are in the pit, when the darkness surrounds us, when we feel overwhelmed, we know that there is somebody that loves us and has held nothing back from us. And it's my prayer this morning, Lord, that you would help us to respond appropriately and rightly to the message about Jesus abandoned by you so that we can be included and accepted. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.